So my thanks to Janet, who last week, uh, she preached a sermon on the shrewd manager, which prepares us for today. As, we th- as we're thinking about generosity, we're thinking about what it means to steward what we have um, for, for, for the Lord. And so there's a lot to say today. And um, if you are new to Jesus, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. And uh, today, um, I, I think that if you are not a Christian, you're here, you're just exploring more about Jesus, that you will resonate with Jesus's heart for, um, for the poor. And uh, so I'm really glad that you're here. I want, I want to begin uh, right now with some Christmas, with some Christmas. We're, I think we're, is this like the furthest opposite Sunday from Christmas, I think, in the calendar? And uh, so let's go there. Um, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, he's a, he's a wealthy individual. Um, he's consumed by greed. Uh, Charles Dickens wrote uh, the, the, the novel A Christmas Carol in 1843. And uh, Ebenezer Scrooge has no heart for the poor. Uh, his business partner, Jacob Marley, has passed away years ago, but, uh, but shows up one winter and comes as a ghost. Uh, Jacob is a ghost wearing chains, and uh, th- these chains he's, he's forced to carry for eternity. Uh, and they, rep- re- they represent this lack of justice and generosity, his lack of love for the poor. And Jacob comes with a message for Scrooge, a warning. And Jacob's base- basic message is this, that greed will lead to eternal punishment. Greed, selfishness and greed, will lead to eternal punishment. punishment. And, and, and Scrooge will have the same fate, or will have the same eternal punishment that Jacob Marley does if he does not change his life, and if he does not start caring for the poor. And so Marley says this, quote, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and of my own free will, I wore it. I'm here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. You see, Dickens, uh, I think, you're going to find in a number of minutes, is inspired by Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. But Dickens, A Christmas Carol, forces us to ask this. What if our lack of generosity has eternal consequences? What if our lack of care for the poor has eternal consequences? Today, Jesus will teach us that we will be judged by how we treat the poor. That's it. That's the message. We will be judged by how we treat the poor. How we love others matters for eternity. Our acts of justice today will make an impact on what eternity will look like for us. In the words of Russell Crowe's character Maximus from Gladiator, what we do in life echoes in eternity. So today, we want Jesus to heal us of our greed, of our selfishness. Today, we want Jesus to cultivate in us a heart for the poor and the marginalized, Today, we want to be healed of any Scroogishness that lies within us. And today, we want to look not to our own interest, but to the interest of others and to love our neighbor. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that your words 2,000 years ago, spoken to your people, have continued to challenge your church 
for 2,000 years. And today, we just sitting here in Walnut Grove uh, on the corner of 96 and 210 on this summer day, pray that in the same way that you have lovingly convicted your people for 2,000 years, that you would do the same today. That we today would catch your heart for the poor and the marginalized. That you would change us from the inside out. Come Holy Spirit. We cannot heal ourselves. We need your healing touch. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 16, if you have your Bible, feel free to to turn to Luke 16, and we're going to begin reading uh, in verse 19. The rich man and Lazarus. So Jesus is speaking to Pharisees right now. These are religious leaders that are caught up in their own greed, and he tells them a story. Here it is. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so, Hades, Abraham, Lazarus, fiery torment, dogs licking wounds, people rising from the dead, dead people coming to life and warning the living. Good morning. Let's do this. You ready? Ready to dive into God's word? Okay. So, the core of the story, uh, I think, makes basic sense, right? So if we're coming to the story, what do we hear? We hear of a great reversal, a great reversal that happens. The rich man who enjoyed pleasure on earth and cared nothing for the poor, for the poor man at his gate, is now in Hades, while the poor man named Lazarus is now with Father Abraham. In eternity, everything changed. Everything switched in eternity. Let's start verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. All right. So it starts off with, there was a rich man. There was a rich man. Well, that, that is a clue to us that Jesus is telling what's called a parable. And if you're new to Christianity or new to Jesus, a parable is simply a little short story that Jesus would tell 
uh, little, little story to illustrate a deep truth about God and the world. And so, uh, you know, in Luke 15, it says, there was a man who had two sons, right? So here's that. There was a rich man. So this is a parable. And in this parable, we first hear that there is a rich man. And, and we, we, we hear a few clues about his life. He lived in luxury every day. This is a daily thing. He didn't just immediately win the lotto one day and then waste it all. No, like most of his life, he just was, he's in that upper, upper tier of, of wealthy people. He lives in luxury. He wears uh, what we read is the finest linen, finest linen, linen, and it's purple. And so purple was an expensive dye at this time. So it's a, it's a color for royalty, um, for, the, for, the, for the wealthy. And he wears the finest linen, and, and one commentator writes that this Greek word is picked up. It seems to be a connection with this Egyptian underwear. So sounds like this guy is ordering his underwear from Egypt, uh, you know, ancient Amazon delivery service. You know, I, I wear Egyptian underwear. And, and, the, and the rich man's table seems to have plenty of food, lots of food. So, um, you know, just imagine this big table of food, probably some guests there. And it's a gated community, right? So there's a, there's a front gate, and uh, we, we continue to read, verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores, and licked his sores. At his gate is a beggar named Lazarus, who's covered with sores or ulcers, like just all over his body. And uh, Daryl Bach um, uh, writes this. He said, Lazarus wears his poverty's pain on his ulcerated skin, a graphic contrast to the rich man's soft clothes. And Lazarus is famished. He's hoping he can catch a couple of crumbs that fall off the rich man's table. Lazarus is uh, most likely crippled as he's lying at the gate, and, and he's being abused by the dogs. Uh, the dogs were unclean animals, um, you know, that were roaming, probably these street dogs roaming around. They would have been considered unclean in Jewish circles. They would have licked probably the corpses of, of other dying animals. So they're coming to lick Lazarus's wounds. And um, Lazarus is hoping that anyone that maybe comes in and out of this gate might be able to help him at his time of need. Now, there's a very interesting fact here because um, Jesus never names characters in his parables, ever. This is the only time in all of Jesus' parables where someone is named. They're given a name. And uh, his name is Lazarus, uh, which means God is my help. God is my help. And this is a foreshadowing that as the world refuses to help and refuses to see Lazarus, that God sees Lazarus. And that one day this eternal help, this reversal will happen where God will care for Lazarus when no one else will. So God is my help is his name. Verse 22 to 24, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Really quick, just notice the rich man is still bossing Lazarus around. Send him to be my servant to go do other things, right? Not, not, not a heart of repentance, I don't think. But here's the deal. The rich man dies, and he's given a burial. That's in Jesus' story. Right? 
He's given a burial. And we don't know if Lazarus has given a proper burial, but he is taken by the angels, right? So he's, he's lifted up by the angels and carried by them. It's beautiful, actually. Um, it, it's a beautiful sign of God taking care of Lazarus, right? God is my help. The angels lift him. And Lazarus is then placed by Abraham's side or on his chest or what some of your translations call the bosom of Abraham, on his chest. L- literally, Lazarus leaning on the chest of Abraham. Well, just what, what picture is that? Well, it's a picture of a banquet. It's a picture of a banquet because if you were to travel back in time to watch how dinner functioned in Jesus' day, there would have probably been a round table only about this high off the ground. And so what people do is they kind of lean on the table with their legs stretched outward, right? So you would see all these people with their legs outward <laughs> and, and everyone kind of leaning in, kind of casually, leaning, you know, maybe with their elbow and eating, you know, and saying hello, greeting those around them. And, 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 and here is Lazarus kind of like leaning close to Abraham at, at a banquet. So the meal that Lazarus never got at the rich man's table, Lazarus is now leaning on the bosom of Abraham at the eternal banquet. So it's a pretty incredible reversal. Some of you might remember John, the beloved of Jesus, at the Last Supper. And what is John doing? John is leaning on the bosom of Jesus, on the chest of Jesus, at the Last Supper. It's a very intimate image. Now, you might be going, why Abraham? (laughs) All of a sudden, Abraham shows up. You know, uh, Abraham is the father of God's family, Israel. And God, um, years and years ago, had made a covenant with Abraham that one day his family would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so to be a part of Israel is to be a child of Abraham, son of Abraham. And what does this show? This shows that Lazarus, covered in ulcers, dogs licking his wounds, Begging, crippled at the gate, is actually not only a child of Abraham, but a dearly beloved child of Abraham, right? Resting, resting on the chest of Abraham. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And where's the rich man? Hades, in Hades. Now, let's, let's chat about Hades. And, and if you've been a Christian for a while, all of a sudden, lots of images of hell come to mind. And... Um, and what I want to do right now is just, just quickly maybe uh, point us to the, the, the heart of the parable and that sometimes our quick images of hell might, might be a little bit misleading. And I'm just going to show you why really quick. When we read this parable, we're tempted to go off on a pretty kind of major tangent on Hades and hell and, and, and our thoughts go there. Um, but remember, this is a parable Jesus t- is teaching about the poor. And, and that's the main point here. So, and and and. If you would like to go on a little nerdy journey on your own this week or, or send me an email and I can kind of point you in different directions, but um, uh, there are some difficult pieces uh, to understanding Hades. Let me just explain why. The first difficult fact is this. Heaven and hell are actually not mentioned in the parable. Instead, what you actually have is Abraham's side and Hades. And a study on Hades in the Bible is, is, is often you find it's a place where everyone goes. It's where everyone goes, and it's, a Greek, it's the Greek word of the Hebrew word, Sheol, which is simply just the place of the dead, the place of the dead. In later Judaism, it, 
it, it looked as though both good and bad go to Hades, and there's good sections of Hades and bad sections of Hades. So it's all quite confusing. So if you'd like to do a little scholarly work or some rabbit trails, you can do that on your own time. Another difficulty is that Hades is ultimately destroyed. Um, and so we read this in Revelation 20. In the end, so then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades is thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed forever. So what is Hades? Is it this weird temporary place? Um, there's a lot of questions about what Hades is. And the reason why there's questions about Hades is because Hades is not the popular word that Jesus uses uh, in reference to hell, which is the word Gehenna. Some of you know that Greek word, Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna is the word that Jesus most uses. He uses it 11 times. And it's, it's actually a place in the city of Jerusalem. It's, it's outside the city. It's the garbage dump. It's where the city of Jerusalem would burn their trash. And I have an image of, of, of this valley. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. And it's the place where you take your garbage and it would burn. And Jesus used it as a metaphor uh, to describe this place of, of eternal judgment. And, um, uh, and so you can actually visit, um, you can visit hell today. Uh, it's right there uh, if you go to Jerusalem. And uh, actually, uh, my, my wife studied in Jerusalem for three months, and she told me she's played ultimate Frisbee in, in hell. And so there it is. Um, but but I, what I'm trying to say is that's Gehenna, and that's the most popular word, and it's not Hades. And, and, and another difficulty is that the rich man is carrying on a conversation with Abraham. Well, that's interesting. Well, if, if it's heaven and hell, how is, how is a rich man talking to Abraham, you know, um, do we speak, you know, is there dialogue between heaven and hell? It's a little bit of a difficult scenario. And the final difficulty is this, and this will hopefully make more sense. This is actually, did you know that this is a common folk story in Jesus' day? Jesus is taking a common folk story, and I'm going to tell you something amazing. He actually changes the ending. This is beautiful. This week, uh, I studied, there's a, an Egyptian uh, version of the story. It's the Egyptian story of Setme and, and Cyrus that predates Jesus. There's actually a Jewish version of the story that predates Jesus. We, you can read about it in the Palestinian Talmud. And so there are these older stories that look exactly like this story, this parable Jesus is telling. But the most fascinating thing is that Jesus takes a popular folk story here and changes the ending. And I'll say more about that in a second. But I'm saying all of this to say that this is not the place we go in the Bible to glean our, our, our most accurate depiction of the, accurate, of, of, the, of the afterlife. It's a story in Jesus' day that he's using to talk about the poor, about giving, about generosity, about justice. And, and that's the point I want to focus on today. Does that make sense? Are you guys awake? Um, oh, oh, no. Whole section on Hades. Uh, everyone's asleep. Uh, so, but here's the deal. This does not mean, does not mean that we... Uh, we, we ignore uh, God's clear judgment on the rich man. That's what's clear in this passage. There is a judgment. Uh, God is on his throne. He's a judge. And God will judge how we live in this life and how we treat the poor. And that what we do in this life does matter for eternity. That's, that's, that's the core of what I think Jesus is getting at. So all these details on Hades, hell, Gehenna, Sheol, how we understand it all, it can wait. Let's be clear, because Jesus is making it clear. What we do in this life matters for eternity. In the end, God will make right what was wrong in this life. All right, verse 25 and 26. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. 
but now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It's too late. It's too late. Rich man, you had your chance. You knew Lazarus's condition. You saw his poverty. And in your life, you didn't help. You didn't. And death marks the end of the road. Death now provides a great chasm, a separation between you and Lazarus. It's too late. He answered, verse 27, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. And just to pause there, this is where you'll, you'll start to hear some Dickens, right? And if you wonder where Dickens was inspired, right, to write his, his, his story. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is interesting. Like Marley in A Christmas Carol, the rich man wants Lazarus to visit from the place of the dead and warn his family. Right? It's like, it's too late for me. But man, if someone could just go warn my family, that would be amazing. He has five brothers, and they need to be warned because they might end up where he is. They need to learn to be generous. They need to learn to care for the poor. And Abraham says, no, no. And you might be interested to know that this is, is precisely the place where Jesus changes this popular folk story. All the other ancient versions of this story, Egyptian, Jewish, there's even a Greek version of this story, they, they end the story with what you find in Charles Dickens. Someone from the dead visits and warns those who are living. That's how all the stories end in Jesus' day. That's how all those folk stories end. The uniqueness is to take this story and pair it with those and to go, that's not how this story ends. Not in Jesus' story. Richard Bauckham, in an article on the rich man and Lazarus, argues that this is where Jesus is so unique. Jesus is teaching this. You don't need a ghost to warn you. You don't need someone from the dead to come back and warn you. You don't need, quote unquote, Jacob Marley, as it were, to warn you. All you need is what you already have. What do you have? The scriptures. Right here. You have the scriptures. You've always had the scriptures. Look and read the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? What does Abraham say? He says, you have Moses and the prophets. And if you're new to Jesus, what he's saying here is you have Moses, and that's shorthand for the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus is saying, you've had those five books. You've had Moses. And you have the prophets, most of the Old Testament, before Jesus, is filled with the writings of the prophets. And, and what, do you, what would you find in Moses and the prophets? God's heart for justice. It's all over the place. 
Some of you who have read the Old Testament, you'll see God's heart for the poor, God's heart for the marginalized, the oppressed, those on the margins of life. Like God's heart for his people to be generous to the poor is not a secret. It's not hard to find in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know the truth. No ghost visiting someone, in the, it's not going to change anything. Like it's always, God's heart has always been there. And the question is, will my people listen to my heart? Will my people listen to the scriptures? Will they steward their money in a way that loves their neighbor? Will they give to the poor? My heart's always been clear. And I want to give you two examples, one from Moses and one from the prophets, just to give you like an appetizer or a taste. But there's so much more than this. But let me give you an appetizer from Moses. Deuteronomy 15, we read this, God's saying to his people, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, God's been clear. Listen to the scriptures. Listen to Moses. And here's an example from the prophets. From the prophets. Listen to Isaiah the prophet. The the people of Israel are fasting, and and they're probably trying to look religious and how they go without food. And wow, you're really spiritual, you know? And God's like, I don't want that kind of fasting. Let me tell you the fasting I want. He says this, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help and he'll say, here I am. What's he saying? Jesus is saying, God's heart's always been clear. This is the kind of worship I want, is to see you love the poor and care for those who are hurting. Listen to the prophets. So listen to Moses, listen to the prophets. And some of you may remember that the most recent prophet of Israel is Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptist, who in the book of Luke says this, Luke 3, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. So at no point should God's people ever go, so what was God's will again? Jesus would say, it's been, it's right under your nose. You don't need to wonder what the will of God is. I remember all those conversations when I was in youth group in a church setting. I don't know if you guys grew up in churches or youth. It's like, what's the will of God, you know? And I feel like God must have been just like, it's right there. (laughs) Give to the poor. Like, go with what's clear. There's some probably unclear areas of life, you know, for sure. But like, go with what you know. And, And I've tried to make this abundantly clear. My heart for the poor. That's the will of God. And our problem is we're caught up in our greed. Matthew's problem is I'm caught up in my selfishness. And, but I don't need a ghost to warn me. I don't need someone from the dead to visit me. God's heart's been clear. Matthew, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Now, the world is often talking about love, 
and it's as though we're all kind of walking around with the same definition of love, and we're not. You know, when the Beatles say, all you need is love, really we should be going, what do you mean by love? If love always wins, and if love is love, what is love? What is love? In the words of Inigo Montoya from The Prince's Bride, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? We, and so, because when we say love, all of us, uh, we go to romantic love, right? We, we, we just go to this feeling, right? But um, to quote um, some amazing prophets of our age, DC Talk, uh, love is a verb, right? Love is a verb. And, and that aligns with the New Testament definition of love, which is the Greek word agape, which is God's love. It's this selfless love. It's a love that gives and cares and protects. And um, it's a beautiful love. Like when, when Jesus was defining what it means to love, love your neighbor, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. Well, that's not like emotions and feelings. It's, it's a, yeah, get off your donkey and then like bandage the wounds and then go pay for the care of this beat up guy. That's love. Love is a verb. Love in action. Um, it's not primarily a feeling. Feelings might come, but it's, 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 it's service. It's, as the late British scholar, Scottish biblical scholar, F.F. Um, F. Bruce wrote, he said, agape love is a consuming passion for the well-being of others. That's the love the rich man was supposed to have for Lazarus. This consuming, there's a man at my gate? I need the agape love of God. I need to be filled with a consuming passion for the well-being of Lazarus. Or as St. Thomas Aquinas says this about agape love, one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says this, quote, to love is to will the good of the other. To love is to will the good of the other. That's agape love. To love my neighbor is to serve, care, provide. It's action. It's a verb and willing their good. And so this week, World Vision reports 719 million people, 9.2% of the world's population, is living on less than $2.15 a day. And children and youth account for two-thirds of the world's poor. And women represent, girls and women, a majority in most regions. And then according to the World Food Program, three million children die a year in our world because of hunger, hunger. Three million around the world. Every year from hunger. It's Lazarus. They are our Lazaruses in the world. And I just want to tell you a little slice from my own life. I've been deeply convicted by this message this week. And Tanya and I um, find ourselves, uh, after 15 years of a certain carpet in our home and our children's art projects that have spilled off the table onto said carpet, uh, we're looking at this very stained carpet going, we need new carpet. And then, you know, you get this quote and you're like, that's how much you're supposed to pay for carpet? And then I read these stats and I know this is complicated. Like, I know this is complicated. Um, look at the room we're in. I mean, how much did this cost? And we're all wearing clothes. It costs a certain... This is complicated. And I don't have easy answers. But, when I, but if I know 
the state of the person at the gate, the Lazarus. And I don't do anything about it. Um, then, I, then I need to ask whether my heart's been transformed by the gospel. And I want to get, and I'll get there in a second. But, but, I, but I hear the words Paul says this to Timothy, a young Timothy. He said this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that it may take hold of the life that is truly life. That there's a life there, that there's a life when there's generosity. And so how, how is Matthew, how are you and I, how are you called as apprentices of Jesus to steward our wealth? Because stewardship is everything. It's everything. I, I, God doesn't own 99%, but I got 1% to myself, right? No, nothing I have is mine. I'm called to make the great investment in this life. And, what, and, what, and according to Jesus, what's the best investment I can make? Jesus says, invest in Lazarus. This is the best investment you can make. Invest in Lazarus, the poor, the marginalized, those in slavery, those, are, those are, who are trafficked, those struggling with addiction, as we heard from Wagner Hills a moment ago. So what do we do? We do the research. We do the research. We find global and local organizations that are tackling poverty well, organizations we trust, and then, <laughs> and then, we open up our wallets and give. I was like, I think I need a more creative application for this sermon. <laughs> what's, the, what's the deeper meaning? And I feel like Jesus would be like, no, <laughs> don't just care for Lazarus. That's the deeper meaning. That's the, the deep meaning of the text, right? This is it. Invest in Lazarus. Because what you do in this life will echo for eternity. And yes, give wisely. Absolutely, give wisely. Give without enabling, totally. Give, help without hurting. Yes, absolutely, help without hurting. And so what do you do? We, we, we partner together with good people and organizations and ways of giving and, 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 and to care for the Lazaruses of our world well. And, and th this is not rocket science. So, so globally, globally, you know, our, our church has already partnered with amazing groups, Wellspring and the great work they're doing in Rwanda, Kawasha and the great work in Uganda, Mennonite Central Committee and their work around the world, Compassion. Many, many of you just partner, are partnered with Compassion. You could go on, right? Some of you have just watched a movie in the theaters. I, I haven't seen it yet, but it's about human trafficking and for years, I've loved the work of International Justice Mission that tackles you know, uh, the problem of human trafficking in a Jesus-centered way around the world. Um, partner with them. Locally, you just heard the amazing work of Wagner Hills and uh, a building for 50 people to be cared for, 50 of our dear friends in our city who are our Lazaruses that we have an opportunity to care for, that they would find shelter in a place um, to find freedom, you know? Uh, what about our street ministry? Every Sunday night, there's a team from our church that goes downtown Langley 
and feed support. And uh, great, great people like Tom and Andy who are leading those teams. And, and that's Sunday evenings to, to partner there and to, and to give. And, and organizations like Gateway of Hope that care for the poor in our city. And so, so it's not rocket science, is it? <laughs> it's, it's just it's the incredible difficulty I find in my life to open up my wallet. And, but here's the beauty and the hope, and I want to end with some hope that when I open up the wallet, that I might find that I'm actually encountering Jesus in the poor. Jesus says this to his followers. He says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, like, you know, when did this happen? Right? When did we see you, Jesus, hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And I love this moment. The king replies, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And that's our worship, is that actually it turns out that the Lazaruses of our world are Jesus. And then when I give to Lazarus, it's like I'm giving to Jesus and I'm clothing Jesus and I'm feeding Jesus. And I'm visiting Jesus. And so you might just encounter Jesus in your love for the poor. And so I want to end with this. I think Dickens got it wrong. According to Jesus, our hearts won't change because of a ghost. As Tim Keller says, quote, you will never have an identity change through fear. So I think Dickens was wrong. He was half right, half wrong, right? I don't need a ghost to visit me. I need the gospel. I need the good news of Jesus. That at the cross, Jesus the rich man did not cling to his riches, but gave it all up to become poor, to suffer, to bleed, to die, so that you and I might have the riches of grace of love, of freedom, of life, of hope. Jesus, who wore the purple robe of heaven, came to earth and gave up that robe to wear a purple robe of mockery at the cross. And he gave up everything for us so that Paul writes this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So only when my heart is captured by that kind of love, Northland, only when my heart's captured, that's when my greed and selfishness is healed, by that kind of love. Let's stand together, and we're going to worship. And we have an opportunity to encounter Jesus in worship and in prayer. And... Our prayer team will come forward. We have our prayer room. 
often I find on Sundays like this, it's a little difficult to know what to be prayed for. And um, I want to say this. Feel free to come for prayer for anything, any need in your life, whatever's going on. But I want to say this. As you pray, some of you might find yourself in the position of Lazarus. You're de- desperate to see God's provision in your life. And um, a reminder to you that God is your help. And uh, we want to pray. We want to help. But also, many of us in the room are going to feel like the rich man. And I would just ask that as we worship, that you would pray something as simple as, break my heart. Break my heart. Let me see the poor the way you see the poor. And so let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit to to move here. So Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see the need around us. Holy Spirit, heal us of our selfishness and greed. Holy Spirit, would you reveal the love of Jesus to us? And Spirit of God, would you transform us from the inside out? And Lord, would you truly create in us just a people of generosity? That this little group of people who worship on the corner of 96 and 210 would be overcome, overwhelmed by the generosity of your love, that we would be a massive blessing to those around us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.